Hello, and welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and you're listening to episode 113 with Petros Antoniadis, DP of The Chosen. Enjoy. It's been, how are you, uh, you're on the East Coast right now? No, right now, Chile, just came back from Greece. I'm in LA. Oh, okay. I'm in the West Coast. Gotcha. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Where are you, where are you located? Uh, Santa Monica. Oh, fantastic. Westwood here. Just an oh, nice. yeah. other. <laughs> yeah, dude. The, uh, you, you've come back right when the weather started to be a little more normal. Cause it was like hot as hell for a long time. Yeah. I heard. And I have to say that in Greece was not any better. I mean, we were facing 110 all the time and humidity and, you know, I mean, it's a beautiful country, but when you give those, uh, circumstances in, then, you know, it was a little bit tough, but yeah, it was beautiful. I actually went to Greece for a high school trip of all things. So this would have been like 2007, 2006, 2007. Uh, and it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was definitely, you know, I had, I had never left the country until then. And it was that it was Greece and Italy separate times. And, uh, but Greece at the time, everything was like, there was a lot of protests, you know, like kind of like union stuff where it was like, they'd be like, oh, there's a lot of trash on the ground, but that's because the trash guys are on strike. And then we get to the hotel and they were like, oh yeah, there's no power at the hotel because the power guys are on strike. And we were like, all right, well, yeah, solidarity. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's something that is constantly happening in Greece. So it doesn't give many, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, feedback on when you were precisely, but it yeah. happens all the time. Yeah. It's a, it's a situation, but, uh, you know, nevertheless, do you remember which, uh, places you visit in Greece? I mean, I, we, Athens, but did you do any ideas? Yeah. We were in, uh, we went to an island where it was like all pistachios, big pistachio island. I can't know the name of it. Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. That place was gorgeous. Um, and they, you know, the food obviously was good. Food everywhere was good. But, uh, yeah, Athens, the, that island, um, we went to see like the, where they light the Olympic torch with that bowl, you know, that ice reflective bowl. Um, so that was all pretty cool. Yeah. Again, I was. 15 or so 16 so that was 16 years ago 17 years ago so <laughs> foggy memory of it but well, uh time to uh go back and create some new memories right yeah my friend went there for his um um uh, what's it called after you get married his honeymoon he went there and he you know all those photos were gorgeous i remember being there speaking of, uh you know i saw that you you grew up painting and stuff and i remember going there and being flabbergasted that you could just go to like a toy store and buy spray paint because there were, I, I have some photos of the most gorgeous, I mean, they, the placement wasn't really ideal, but the most gorgeous, like, graffiti murals. There's, like, art just everywhere, even if it's not quite, you know, oh, this building's 2,000 years old, but that's a really cool piece of art. Maybe it shouldn't have, maybe to the left a little bit, but, you know. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, um, uh, the urban art in Greece, it's uh, quite spectacular, yeah. uh, but it's also a form of protest. So, you know, mm. wherever they decide to place it, it's, you know, for a specific reason, protest as well, besides doing art. So that's why you can see that, you know, the center of Athens, for example, is bombarded with graffitis all over. Some of them aren't very nice. Some yeah. of them would need some work. It's just protest. But anyway, yeah. it's uh, it's beautiful, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, well, specifically, I wanted to ask, I assume you don't do... Uh spray paint art but i had seen that you grew up as a painter initially before getting into camera work and i've always wanted to talk i think i've only talked to like one other person who started in painting because you know there's all people always say like oh um you know cinematography is painting with light and i think that phrase can be confusing to people who you like you can't use that phrase to explain your job to someone who doesn't know what cinematography is because i think it makes sense now but even a few years ago, I'm like, I don't really get, if anything, it's painting with shadow, but <laughs> digital, but, um, yeah. what sort of skills did you bring from painting to, uh, cinematography? Was that like, you know, composition mostly obviously lighting, probably a part of it, but you know, as a painter, you're, you're the production designer too and stuff. So, um, yeah, well, you yeah. know, I, um, I, I cannot consider myself a painter per se, because you know, that's one of the first skills that I developed in a very young age because of my grandfather who was a painter and a photographer. So he introduced me from a very young age into art, into pictures, into all of that. So it was uh, mostly his influence, along with uh, the uh, intuition that I had towards art, uh, that made me paint, mostly uh, draw. 
to be honest with you, and with colors later. But uh, that was my my very very early years. So uh, you know, it's mostly instinct on you know what is being created there. I think that you later bring in another art form. Um, I I was I was blessed enough to um, uh, decide that I wanted to become a cameraman at the age of ten. So the previous years I was painting quite a bit, and the years after, uh, but uh, you know I I didn't uh, very um, uh, I, I don't have a collective memory of those steps because they were so young that you know it was just you know a flow. I, I went with the flow, and I just you know decided one day that I'm going to become a cameraman. Sure, yeah, yeah. I, I think it was kind of the same for me. I remember my parents having like a home video camera and even as a younger child, like six, seven, eight, you know, just like grabbing it from them and being very interested in documenting at least. I don't know if I ever really got a creative eye until much later, but, um, sounds like you kind of had the creative eye built in and didn't have the tools until later. <laughs> well, might be, might be this or might be the fact that, uh, you know, what really drew me into uh, filmmaking and, you know, uh, becoming a camera and, was um, uh, the big cameras that I would see that somehow were majestic to me. I mean, sure. first of all, they were not very available to me. I could not just go and grab a professional broadcasting or cinema camera. And uh, the fact that they were not available made them even more appealing to me at that age. But I would go, I remember, you know, we had um, uh, posters in my home city that I would see that there was a television station uh, you know, uh, affiliated with the event. So I would go, I didn't care about the event, just those cameras and the tripods and all these wirings and the monitors and how they were doing this. I mean, I was super fascinated by by that. So um, I think that um, what drew me in was the tools that I didn't help. I mean, the uh, you know, that, that I really wanted to touch that and it was sometimes close enough, but uh, uh, untouchable. And uh, yeah, so uh, I don't know if I first built, uh, you know, the composition and, you know, the uh, artistic side and then just found the tools. I think that the tools made it just appealing that I had to be touching them. So uh, sure. I was I was drawn to that. I mean, in the beginning, to be honest with you, when I first got my first camera, which was a, a Panasonic VHS, you know, a very the old one was older than me, but it was big. And that was appealing. Um, I, I I don't think I really cared about what I was shooting as long as I was shooting, as long as I had in my shoulder and I was going around and pretending to uh, you know do interviews or whatever. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean it, it was the tools that drew me. In, I think. Do you uh, still find yourself now now more than ever? You know, obviously back in because uh, we're about the same age. Like back in 08 to twelve nothing i mean things still weren't accessible you had a dvx we've talked about this a lot on this podcast but that was about it and then now there's just so much gear in all that you know there's there's crazy new tripods that people are reinventing like you know screws uh <laughs> do you still find yourself kind of uh nerding out about equipment or have you, has that kind of uh waned over the years i i i think that uh uh for the first time in my life i realized during this in a year, so 2023, that I went there, that I was not- Oh, Seneca here in LA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was not paying attention to nothing that was surrounding me. I was mostly paying attention to meet people, to, you know, shake some hands, you know, um, start up some conversations and all that. Because I think that I came to realize that, you know, tools are great, of course. And I love that, you know, they're, companies that try to help our vision become even more accessible. Um, and however, I think that, you know, you have to know what's out there. Uh, but um, I, I mean, I have a great gaffer, Joel Gill, who, um, you know, he would, whenever we're doing something, he will bring something new on board that I would never, you know, uh, ask for. And then would try it out and play it out. And I think that, you know, the, the majority of how I tend to touch new tools is uh, through that and of course through research. So whenever I, I need something for a specific thing, I'm going to look into it. So I'm not so much drawn into 
the tools anymore. Like, you know, the first time that I went to Snegir, for example, I was, wow, that's Disneyland here. And not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. Now it's Disneyland for connections and people. Yeah, I'm telling you. So I went as well. Uh, I write for this website called Pro Video Coalition, and they had me, uh, you know, doing standard, figure out what people are offering, that kind of thing. And, uh, not only did I also not really care about what I was, I mean, like when I was talking to the person, I, I confident I did good journalism, but, uh, afterwards I was just, you know, didn't really care. And then everyone I've spoken to since who was there, all the DPs, even people who just, well, maybe not the people who just go there to look at gear. Cause obviously, but all the DPs, you know, on this podcast and otherwise all said they, it, they might as well have just been empty with everyone walking around because no one was looking at like new cameras, new lights. Yeah, they're all great. You know, everyone's got to do thing, but it would, you'd look at it and go, okay. And then move on and go grab a beer. Exactly. Go see who, you know, you know, exactly. Exactly. And I, and I, and I think that's, uh, you know, the beauty of this event, I mean, okay, it's great to be surrounded by, uh, the uh, new and hot, but nowadays, you know, technology is progressing in the, the speed of light so that even if you're really trying your best to keep out, uh, to keep up with what's out there and available. I don't think that you can. So, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, I, I was having a conversation last night with a great friend of mine, and we we're talking about the AI and, you know, the new technology and how new technology is, you know, affecting our industry and all the industries and how, you know, the world will not look alike in, you know, a decade or so. And, um, you know, we were very concerned and we were saying, you know, you cannot do this, you know, AI does it better than you, and then this AI does it better than you. And then he stopped for a second and he said, you know what AI cannot replace? Nah, what? Please tell me there is something out there. And he said, uh, human connection. I mean, this is irreplaceable, uh, at least for the time being. So, uh, because it's in the, in the imperfections that, you know, AI will always be perfect. But the imperfections are what make our human connection even stronger. So, uh, that's in a year. It's connections. And yeah. then technology. Well, and to that point too, like visually, I think all cameras now, like when younger folks are like people on, you know, subreddits online or whatever, like what camera should I get? Should I get this, this or this? I'm so confused. I'm always just like, whichever one you think, whichever one, if you were to flip a coin and you know in the air, oh, I want whatever Sony, just get it. Cause they're all great to your point about perfection. Like the cameras now are all basically perfect. So people start trying to introduce imperfections. They use vintage lenses. They will, well, we'll get to in a minute, but you fucking throwing the anamorphic on sideways just to get a square image, you know, like random little things that like introduce uh, something different because no, perfect is boring. Perfect does not excite, you know, uh, a roller coaster that's completely caged in and only does 50 miles an hour is not as fun as an F1 car that you alone are driving. You know, the the danger or the imperfection or the, element of unknown is always more interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that is what, uh, you know, drives our narrative, right? I mean, uh, you know, we're capturing light, but we're not trying, anybody can capture light, but uh, what we're trying as cinematographers is to capture emotions. And the emotions exist because of our, um, of our experience, which experience comes from our imperfections. So uh, whatever we didn't do right creates emotions. Whatever was not done right to us creates emotions. Uh, whatever, you know, so I, I think that it's that is a beautiful emotional journey that we're trying to uh, capture. And um, I believe that uh, uh, the best way to do it, as you said, is with the tool that you find available. I yeah. mean, you know, uh, they, they, I I, um, I was uh, like to be, um, uh, you know, in the committee of the Los Angeles Greek Film Festival and I saw some amazing films over the years, short films. And there was this one short film that was shot on an iPhone. Uh, and I will always be bringing this uh, uh, out there. But it was supposed to be shot on an iPhone. So it was supposed to be, you know, this clip of live from Facebook type of situation. And... Uh, I mean, if you had all the money in the world to shoot it on um, IMAX, it wouldn't make sense. The right tool was to shoot it on an iPhone, and the story was perfectly told by being shot on an iPhone with just available light, a warner, basically. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's it's the tools. I mean, the tools uh, are around, and, you know, you just have to figure out what's available to you and how you can tell the story with what's available there. 
Yeah. Well, and I also think too that, and this, not just cameras, I think this applies to any tool. Two things. One, I think I'm stealing both of these from Adam Savage, but uh, from the Mythbusters. But one, if you're getting into something, you should just get the whatever tool is available, you know, the cheapest version until you know what you need and then get the most, the best one you can afford, you know? But then also I think there is, um, there is something to be said about a camera that you physically enjoy interacting with or a tool that makes you happy to either own or hold or look at like a weird, um, to not just look, cause people go like, oh, you know, whatever cameras are just tools. And I agree, but I, for instance, much prefer to like shoot with my Fujifilm stills camera because physically it makes me happy more so than like my old Nikon DSLR or like other DSLRs because those feel more sterile. You know, I like the idea of um, fun in the object itself because if, if I want to pick it up to use it, I will versus treating it like, you know, uh, an obligation almost. Yes, and, and, and this is actually something that people don't uh, understand, right? Uh, Upfront, for example, I haven't shot a lot of 35, just some tests and things like that, but I've shot quite a bit 16. And I love shooting on 16. Uh, it's it's a, a magical uh, medium to use. But above all, when, you know, we have countless discussions with, uh, you know, with uh, producers and why would you shoot on film? And it's a, a hassle and all that. Yes, but you know, the feeling that you get when you're right there and you're the only one that hears the... Um. And you see the image flickering in front of your eyes. The emotions that are created to you, if no one else, but to you that you're the one capturing this, are so incredible that this... And this only forces you to be then better and make the maximum out of a situation. I mean, it just brings the smile in your face. So if nothing else, it just brings a smile in your face and it's beautiful to do. Uh, so um, I, uh, I I wholeheartedly believe what you're saying about the tools that some tools make you, you know, when I, they're hot, man. I mean, what can yeah. you say? I mean, you, will you ever forget the first time that you shot on the Alexa, whatever right. that was? I mean, you... So you had a hard on just by looking at it and thinking, oh my God, what are we doing here? I mean, I'm shooting with the same camera that Dickens is. So, uh, I mean, that's great. Uh, but I think that this tends to kind of fade. And uh, I, I, I have this example. I just uh, finished shooting a, a film in India. And uh, it was a very, very beautiful film. I really enjoyed uh, what we did. Uh, and we shot on the 35. Um, in the beginning, I was excited to do so until I saw the camera and after five minutes, it passed. Okay, that's another great camera. All right, it's going to do the job. Mm -hmm. the, wait, you saw on 35 millimeter or the Alexa 35? No, on the Alexa 35. On yeah, the Alexa yeah. 35. Yeah, which, by the way, has some amazing low-light capabilities which saved us big time. Really? I So I've only seen tests. I've been waiting to meet, like no one I know has used it yet. I think I've seen a couple tests. I saw one person say like, oh, the reds are fixed. Like the high reds aren't magenta anymore. They stay red. And then the highlight retention, it's just impossible. You, you can't blow it out. Yeah. Well, um, you know, you can always uh, blow out things if you really want to. <laughs> if you uh, are trying, yeah. But, but, but the truth is that the camera really protects you. I mean, we haven't gone into DI yet. So uh, I'm yet to see how some things will work out although technically i should uh you know uh, very um um you know conservatively well i i don't really want to push things when it's not necessary to do so uh but i can say that we're shooting some amazing night uh exteriors um that you know we we put the entire track out and you know with lights and all that uh and uh, I was shooting on um, uh, 3200 and, and it looks fantastic. I mean, I can, I, 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 I hope that very soon I'm going to be able to share with you and, uh, you know, uh, what these images look like and they are spectacular. I was so happy, although I have to say that at one scene, because we're so much losing the light and we had, you know, to do it on the perfect light when, you know, the task is there, it's, everything is blue, you have like 10 minutes to do it, it was not working out, so we're pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, 
And at some point I reached 6,400, which is the maximum that you can. And I have to say oh, that really? so yeah, and that so is unusable. Uh, you, uh, I mean, it's, it's almost grainy, but, uh, but yeah, I was, I was super impressed. I mean, you know, we were shooting at 110, 115 degrees with 98% humidity. You were oh, melting geez. there, but the camera did not feel nothing was there rocking you. Yeah. Great, great tools. Great tools. I mean, that's kind of when people ask like, oh, if I've seen online discourse like, oh, black magic can look just like an Alexa. Why would you bother? And that's the reason right there is like, I can put it in underwater basically in humidity and it'll still run. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's, um, that's, that's why you pay the extra bucks. I think, I mean, the black magic, for example, even, even the, uh, the pocket one, I mean, if you have it as a third camera or something, you know, you can put it in corners that you can never put an Alexa, um, you can. Definitely. I mean, you're much better colorist than I am. I, I've never really done coloring myself. So, but you probably know that nowadays you can match pretty much everything. And yeah. with my experience, um, I mean, the previous sensor, at least of the Alexa, what I was able to bring much closer to that look out of the box was the black magic. I mean, it's, it's a fantastic tool for the man. It's uh, unbelievable, of course. Of course, but then you cannot do things like that, you know, uh, run it for 14 hours a day in the uh, humidity and this and that, and, uh, you know, it's still there working for you. And it doesn't have a viewfinder. Well, I guess the Ursa, I just picked up, I didn't pick it up, but it was sent to me to review the Ursa 12K. And like, again, the image out of that thing is just stunning. And it, But the body shape and the ergonomics of it is like so... It, it like fights you again, going back to the idea of like wanting to pick up a camera and use it. That one kind of wants you to leave it on a tripod. You know, it doesn't, I don't want to, there's just some buttons. You just, it feels like there's so many buttons on that thing. And all you really want is record like all the other, but like, you know, there's like game switches and stuff. I'm like, yeah, just record, please. Like, uh, tell me much. the truth. Uh, when you're shooting with any camera, do you really know even where, where the record button is? In the majority of the times, I don't even know. I will say on, yeah. oh, I was going to say on the, on the Canon, I have a C500. And so I do know that on the handle, there's one right there, but every once in a while I'm not using that. And I'm like, oh, there. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the Alexa yeah. does have that big one right here on like over the shoulder. That's pretty easy. Yeah, or, or, or on the viewfinder, but you know, uh, for example, the, um, sometimes you're, you know, for some reason, you know, you're. Uh, focus puller cannot press the rec for you. And whenever this happens and, you know, I am, you know, until, or, you know, trying to, you know, be there whenever I am told from the HMS that uh, can you press the rec, it's like they're right. telling me to solve an equation of mathematics that I've never done before. I cannot find that, that button anywhere. <laughs> it's crazy. It's yeah. That one are like, I. To, not to knock on uh, Ari at all, but having those three reprogrammable buttons, they really should, or three or four harmonies, they really should give you a way to not have to use tape to write what they are. Because, like, you know, you'll get one from the rental house and you think, you just remember that one being, like, turn on ND or turn off ND and you click it and it's, like, suddenly it goes false color, but you click it again and it doesn't <laughs> go away. And you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> Video village is like, wait, what is this? And you're like, nothing. Stop looking, stop looking. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, uh, you know, uh, hat, uh, uh, hat off to our, uh, wonderful camera teams that yeah. they know what we want and they go to prep it. And it always seems to be the same camera all around. I did want to ask, oh, go yes. ahead. I just wanted to add, uh, for the India thing, uh, that I shot on amazing lenses. I have to tell you. Mm that I adored, I, I adored the look and it was a last minute uh, decision. I mean, I did not have time to prep. I just went there. We did a bunch of other prep instead of, you know, actually focusing on, uh, you know, what camera we're using and what lenses. Right. Uh, but at the very last minute, I decided to uh, shoot it on uh, the Hawk uh, C-Series. However, however, um, the rental house somehow threw in an elite 24.5 anamorphic. And oh my God, I have to say that 60% of the film 
he shot on the 24.5. Another uh, uh, 25% he shot on the 35 uh, hook. Yeah. And, you know, 50, 75, and 100 rarely used. Right. I, I, it, that, that one lens gave to the film shot. I mean, the moment that I put on the camera and I saw what it does, I was so, I mean, have you heard of a 25 millimeter anamorphic before? I've never no, heard something like this in my life. 25 and a half. 24 and a half. 20, or 24 and a half, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I was blown away. And even, you know, the close-ups, I mean, I would just bring it right here. I mean, the, I, I wish I could share now some pictures, but anyways, we're going to discuss it when it comes out. I yeah. just want to add this, that uh, uh, those last elite. Yes, elite. Never even heard of them. Neither did I, but it was just yeah. there on the on the uh, lenses, and I picked it up and I said, "What's that?" And uh, it turned out to be the lens for the movie. <laughs> That's so awesome! Yeah, I've I've used Talk a couple times. They make great lenses, and they're local to LA here, so that's always nice. You know, yes, uh, people who work there are nice. Um, I did want to ask though, you know, kind of the other side of things. Uh, you know, looking through your reel and stuff, you have a very sort of um, naturalistic way of lighting that I think a lot of people like, including myself. Uh, and I was wondering, did you have any sort of, um, uh, inspirations that kind of pushed you towards that style of lighting or did, was that more one of those things that kind of came naturally to you just from personal preference or like, how did you kind of build, cause you have a very cohesive look and not that everything looks the same, but you, you, you have a fingerprint, you know? Um, and I was wondering how you, how you came to that. Well, I, um, by watching films, I realized very early on, I mean, in the beginning, of course, I wanted to become a director, right? I mean, that was the focus. I mean, I'm a director. And then, you know, later on, I had the great blessing to have in my life, Walter Lasley, who's an Oscar winner cinematographer, who's living in our house in my little city in Hainia. Oh, wow. It was a huge blessing having him around all the time. And uh, we never talked cinematography, by the way. I mean, he never pushed me to be a cinematographer, although back then I was saying that, you know, I'm a director and all that. Uh, but um, um, I, I think that uh, the way that he would describe the narrative, because we would watch films together and would discuss the narrative and what the story said, never technical stuff, never, maybe if there was something, uh, you know, uh, a candlelit scene that he wanted to dive into, we wouldn't. But generally speaking, would speak about, you know, the film itself. And um, I think that all those references were very naturalistic. And so when I started watching films outside of, uh, you know, our sessions together, uh, whatever was not naturalistic um, kind of drew me out of the film. I mean, that's that's a preference, of course, that I've that I, I mean, it doesn't mean that every audience member, when you don't know how this light is coming here, um, would be thrown out of the story. But personally, I am thrown out of the story sometimes when, you know, I don't understand how a lighting situation has happened. Which again, it's it, it's totally fine to do so. I mean, there are some marvelous films that they're intentionally using light in a very su surrealistic way that works for the movie. That's great. That's great. But personal to me, um, I try to uh, use what would be uh, natural sources, what would look natural to your eyes, and make that natural look work for the movie, if possible. I mean, there have been some times that I have, you know, um, gone a little bit further away from naturalism. Um, uh, for some certain things that uh, I believe needed so. Uh, but for the majority of things, I just uh, feel that um, what drives the narrative is the performance. And yeah. the more tools you pull around to support it, sometimes they don't need that support. Sometimes all they need is some negative field here to make it a little more dramatic and just be on their face and let the actors play out. Because, you know, a film with uh, good cinematography and Bad performances unwatchable, while right. vice versa is a very watchable film. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I try to uh, maximize on letting the uh, performances speak for themselves and the narrative, and try to use my tools in a naturalistic way so that they don't drive the audience 
or at least myself, out outside the story. But they are there to support the story and, uh, you know, uh, bring it uh, forward. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the, not that getting that look is per- always easy, but it's nice when you can just light with like one big soft source or something. And it literally is just like one stand and then you're done. Yes. Yes. You know, it saves a lot of time. <laughs> and, and and it's not, you know, I I, I find it to, uh, you know, Walter again, uh, when I finally decided that, you know, cinematography is my path, then we started talking a little bit more technical stuff. And he was telling me that you're going to find in uh, your life many times yourself uh, breaking your head because you're, you are lighting a bar of chocolate and you have used 90 lights and it doesn't look good. You know what you have to do in that case? Turn all the lamps off, but one, and shoot. It's going to be ready. So uh, simplicity is key sometimes. And uh, as you said, I mean, when you have, you know, one big source, that's why I do love a little bit big sources. I prefer to have less and bigger than few smaller ones. Because a, a big source can give you, for example, you know, you can push it through a window and then use the elements of the room to, uh, you know, work it out. I mean, that's something that I was doing on the Chosen quite a bit. I mean, you know, I was pushing through the window a big source like an 18K or 4K is even closer to the window and then had, you know, the table bouncing off the light onto the actors or put some elements on the table or on the chairs or right where, you know, the uh, the light was hitting the ground in order to reflect and all that and start shaping with one lamp. I think that uh, I love this way of uh, working, to be honest. Uh, it's, it, it doesn't mean that, you know, it's the only thing that you should be doing, of course, but uh, it's another great tool to have to be able to shape uh, the light. I think it's uh, important. Yeah, I think a great way uh, that helps me kind of light like that was just to consciously, for one year, I only shot black and white photography, like even on my cell phone. And I would just look, I would go around wherever I was and just constantly be on the lookout for good light. Like if the light looked good, I'd take up, it didn't necessarily have to be a photo of anything in particular, just the light, the way the light was like coming into a room or by a street or off a building or whatever. And then from there I was able to build more, you know, like characters, but especially in like, let's say New York, it's like cheating. Cause it'll be like all flagged off on one side and then the sun's coming in and bouncing and like hitting your subject for this nice hard backlight. And you're like, and then, you know, um, but yeah, you can learn a lot. For example, it's it's a great uh, because I'm doing this as well. I mean, whenever I am in a situation that I see the light doing something unexpectedly nice, I would take a photo of whatever it is. It doesn't have, as you said, to be a good photo. It just has to capture, uh, you know, the um, uh, the um, uh, lighting situation, so I can recall it uh, later as uh, as a reference. Um, and uh, that proves right there that you know the biggest inspiration is life itself. It's not movies, because movies are a depiction of life. But if you're lucky enough to be living and have your eyes open, you can see things that you would go, wow, wow, how is this working here like this? I would never have expected it. I would, if I would see it on a movie, it would throw me off because I would think that it's artificial here. Wow, it's amazing. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I, 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 uh, I wholeheartedly I'm on the same boat with you, capturing, you know, whatever lighting situation is around me. And uh, I find it uh, interesting. Yeah. And then you get to, you know, replicate it. I was, we were just talking uh, the last podcast I did where uh, we were saying how we both get really um, nitpicky about catch lights. Like I have this one look great photo I took, but you can tell that I used uh, an Astera tube as like the, the the wrap and i just hate that there's like this line like a weird line it doesn't look like a you know thing it's just like a line in the eyes like oh. and he was saying the same thing he had like a i think it was a tube or a panel at playing his firelight and you could see it in the catch eye and he was like no everyone's gonna know i cheated like <laughs> <laughs> well the worst the worst thing is when they wear uh, sunglasses the actors or uh, even oh. regular glasses you can't light and light. I mean, it's impossible. It's impossible. But sometimes, you know, you have to live with, uh, you know, the consequences of, uh, you know, are you going to make it look as you want to make it look? And maybe 
just maybe you convince production to kind of paint it out, uh, right. but really not. You just have to convince yourself that you're okay with the situation seeing that tube over there, or you prefer to not put that tube over there and then the entire picture looks uh, not as good as it could. You know, yeah. it's, uh, it's a game that's like, there's for the longest time when I was a kid, I thought that sunglasses, like I, I'm, you, I'm sure this has happened to you where you're like watching a movie as a, as a kid and you th just accept that that's reality, but it's not, it's clearly artifice from film. And so the one that always bugged me that I just thought like, maybe I wasn't getting cool enough sunglasses was when, especially that they'd have like what, whatever big mirrored aviators and they were super frosted over so that you couldn't see the reflection, you know, it would just be like a matte. And I was like, oh, I want those cool matte sunglasses. I was like, that was, that was, that was the art department did that. That was not, that actor can't see out of those. <laughs> but thank God they did. Or is it happy to be behind those, those uh, lenses? <laughs> yeah, that's the nice thing about shooting corporate stuff is you can just be like, hey, take that off. And they're like, oh, but I can't see. It's like, it doesn't matter. You just don't see for a while. Yes, uh, I mean, so sometimes, you know, uh, working with actors, you know, it's uh, important. Sometimes, you know, you can tell them that, you know, maybe you should reconsider putting those glasses in the scene. Sometimes yeah. they will, sometimes they don't. I mean, of course, they have the first saying, but, uh, you know, it's it's cool when they're like, yes, but uh, I think that the character would be wearing those glasses now. But say, but it's not that, uh, you know, the character is alone and does this and... Okay, then I'm not worried. I think your character would chew on the end. <laughs> uh, I did want to talk because about uh, what was the the short film called? It's got a big old long name. The the one that uh, flickering souls set alight. Yes. Uh, so you shot the whole thing. This is a crazy pivot, but I did want to talk about it because that for the first time in IMDb history, there's just a great shot of you using the camera. Nine times out of ten, I'm, whenever I'm doing research, I like got to zoom in real far. Uh, see what the hell they're using but you had mounted your uh cook s4s on an on a mini sideways so you got a, so, a square image so it, it was cook anamorphics uh that uh we right, uh, right, right, we right. shot and uh, the reason that we uh, went there is uh because of um um uh limitations that is uh, a key uh drive into creativity i think yeah, so I uh, 100% agree. So, um, you know, the um, we had the great director, Iagos Panagopoulos, who uh, did a two years research on um, ALS, which is the subject of the movie, right? And went and visited countless houses that, you know, had patients. And uh, a similarity, you know, we're talking about it. And, you know, he was bringing all this tons and tons and tons of information on the table. And that's why prep is the most important thing in a film, hands down. Uh, so we're talking about, you know, hours and days spending. Uh, and then at some point, he brought something very interesting on the table, which is that um, uh, these patients, because, you know, they cannot even turn their heads left or right. I mean, you know, they're fully functional brains in zero functional bodies. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, because they're constantly, you know, have to look a certain, uh, or the, for the majority until somebody helps them, uh, a certain location, uh, the family and the loved ones, you know, usually plays, you know, photos from the past or, you know, elements that he liked or she liked and all that. And as the years pass, this grows organically uh, into squares because, you know, you place here, you place there, and then, you know, this organically grows, in, grows into a square, mm. which Iacobos uh, um, um, called it the square of memories. But I was blown away by this uh, piece of information because those people that are trapped in their non-functional bodies, the only escape they have from their reality is to look at these elements of this visual content, which is again shaped like a box. It's, it, it's here. So they can fly in as free as they can within, you know, uh, the parameters of a square and mm -hmm. so um after thinking about it, i thought so that you know because the the film i mean the camera we had discussed with the iago was had to be almost like the fifth character of the movie that's why it's only you know single takes uh every scene is a single take and all that 
uh, I said, how about we actually bring that square to our world? So uh, we actually shoot it on a one-by-one aspect ratio. And uh, in the beginning, it was a little bit reluctant. Uh, should we and should we know? I mean, who has done that before? So I started, you know, researching. And I found Mummy, for example, which is a beautiful film that is, you know, so uh, the majority of it is on a square. Uh, but they cropped. They had to crop. The problem with us cropping was that, first of all, we could not afford an Alexa Mini in the beginning. Thus, we didn't have a 4x3 sensor. We had an Amira available, which has a 16 by 9 sensor. So uh, if we were to drop a 16 by 9 that means you're losing almost like 40% of the information just to keep it right here, just to keep it square. And you need much uh, wider lenses. Much wider lenses. And of course, we're shooting at locations that are fantastic, but they were super, super squeezed as well. So... What are we going to do? Are we going to shoot the entire film on a 12 mil? I mean, how are we going to, you know, work around it? And then the idea hit my head that what about actually, instead of cropping, we add information somehow to our sensor. So how do you add information? And I said, what about, you know, turn, getting an amorphic glass, instead of squeezing like this, you squeeze like this. So, you know, the uh, 16 by 9, will actually become, if you think about it, um, 16 by 18, which is almost a perfect square. So, and then you have to crop top and bottom a little bit, but you know, it it might work very well. Mm. And a huge shout out to the amazing team we had in the film. Uh, Vangelis Zifak is my first AC, who this guy can pull focus with his eyes closed. He has it in his soul. I don't know how he's pulling focus. Uh, to uh, Dimitris Makrigianis, who uh, is a programmer, because we couldn't, uh, you know, we couldn't have live monitoring. There was no monitor back right. then that would allow you custom squeezing and custom aspect ratios. So we had to find a way that the camera would actually send the signal to a computer. The computer would squeeze it as we wanted and add the bars, and then back to the uh, bit of the monitors, which in the beginning had huge delays and this and that. Anyways, everybody did, and of course the rental house, Arctos in Greece, amazing rental house, who just was giving us equipment all the time to try this, try that, try this. And uh, and that's uh, that's how we end up, uh, you know, seeing some pictures from the test that we did. That we said, that's the film. I mean, that's, that's the film because it looks like a format that we have never seen before. I mean... If you look at those pictures, they look like almost a six by six photo. I mean, they look yeah. bombarded with information, although they are a square. Uh, and that's that was uh, how we uh, and we achieved that. Yeah, well, and it, it's kind of cool because, like, like you said, it does kind of look like a medium format photograph. And in some ways, it's almost <laughs> IMAX ratio. <laughs> yeah, one four three, but. Uh, <laughs> But it's cool because because you're using an anamorphic, there is that kind of uh, strange, interesting fudginess on the edges, but they don't appear where you expect them because the, the lens is sideways. So it's like the sides get kind of like, and it kind of draws you in in this weird, um, I keep saying weird like it's bad, I, I mean in a good way, uh, vignette, like this kind of strange vignette that pulls you into the center of the image in a way. Very much so, very much so. Uh, but, uh, you know, there are other elements that you would expect, for example, the flares. I mean, those lenses do not flare as much. However, I was expecting the flares. I mean, since, uh, you know, you would expect them here to be perfectly here, but they were not. They're somehow like this. They are diagonal, if you bet interest to them. And uh, same same thing with the bokas. I was expecting that since, you know, the bokas are usually like this, that they would be like this. But no, they're not. They are kind of... It's 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 very weird. I mean, you have to uh, to take a look to uh, and uh, pay close attention to this. But you can see that they are behaving very unexpectedly. That is what that's still pretty cool. Well, and I saw in that same photo that you were putting a streak filter on the front. Yeah, that like yeah. all the time or just for certain scenes? No, it, it was for one uh, specific scene oh. actually. Uh, that we're actually shooting through a mirror even. So the uh, the shot starts by looking in this um, cafe new, in this uh, cafe place. Um, and you're looking through a mirror, but you don't realize this in the beginning until 
a character, you know, gets up and goes, and then, you know, we dolly in as we pan uh, to the left. And that's how you realize that, okay, you were watching this through a false perspective. And it was important to showcase that false perspective in this scene because mm. one of the two characters believes that uh, the other character has done something. The other character explains that, well, that's not exactly how things happen. And then he stands up to reenact what happened in the past. That's very, a very interesting thing. So as the camera travels to do so, I wanted an element which, if I would bounce some extra lighting, would give us some additional flaring and something to showcase the transition from now to uh, the past. And that's uh, why, uh, you know, we, uh, we chose that. Gotcha. Were you using any other filtration on the uh, on the film? Some Black Promise, uh, I think, we did as well. Um, which so there's some atmosphere in those bedroom shots that could be a filter. It could just be. Uh, hate. No, I think it's 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 the majority of um, of a combination. Actually, I mean, I do like the Black Promise. To be honest, as a filter, I don't take a lot of filters with me usually. But the, that one, it's something that I need uh, in uh, my toolbox. Uh, and um, it was a haze, of course. I mean, uh, but, you know, haze, I mean, it's such a lovely tool, but having long takes and shooting on location and not on a stage, a location that had holes everywhere, <laughs> I mean, it was quite a thing to keep. <laughs> right. There was one trick I learned about haze. I haven't shot with haze in forever, but I remember someone... This might have been David Mullen, not teaching me specifically, but someone was saying that if you take a gray card and put it in the back of the room and then use a spot meter, you can just, if there's, you know, if there's less haze, it'll get darker, the reading. And if there's too much haze, it'll get brighter. So as long as you keep that spot meter, the same F-stop, doesn't matter what it is, but just as long as you, you set the tone and you're like, all right, I like the haze that much. So you meter the gray card at the other side of the room and then go, all right, that's the number that the haze has to be at for it to be the same hazeness. Fantastic, fantastic trick, I would say. Um, and I can yeah. see how, I, I mean, it can help out. I mean, sometimes, you know, when you have, you know, huge thing, you know, sometimes, you know, the haze drops and creates. Totally. Uh, but, but it's a fantastic way to uh, actually uh, make sure that, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, special effects people, you know, they're super helpful and all that, but they don't have the eye for the detail that we are trained to have. So sometimes they're like, oh, okay, but it's exactly the same. But like, no, it is not the same. This yeah. is a perfect way to uh, showcase that. Well, uh, maybe we should keep it on that level. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you ever become like a meter person or do you kind of just trust the monitor? Cause I, I, one, one of my favorite things now is getting on a set and lighting with just meters without setting up the camera, you know, the who, whatever AC can set up the camera, but, uh, because then the director will just get off my, Hey, I need to see a frame. I'm like, just give me, give me, it's, you know, like you were saying about shooting film and you're the only person who knows lighting with meters. is like, I'm the, like, you know, everyone lets me do my quiet thing until I set up a camera and I'm like, ta-da, you know, versus someone sitting over your shoulder and nitpicking you the whole time. Can't that be a little, you're like, wait, you know? Yes. Well, uh, especially in the beginning, I think I was uh, trying to use my meter as much as possible. Mm. But as the gears are progressing, I have it with me, but uh, I mean, some days I don't even touch it uh, because I, I don't trust the monitor per se, but I do trust the pulse color. Right. So um, I, I do think that it gives me more than enough information that I need in order to make the right choices. Uh, sometimes I will go back to the uh, light meter but for example, we went to India, I had this a little bit embarrassing. So we went to India and I realized that I forgot my light meter. I was like, God, what am I going to do now? I think uh, my gaffer Joel had his. But um, I mean, did I ask him maybe five or six times during the whole shoot, can I borrow your light meter for a second? Right. I think that was that. So uh, it shows, would, would I have used more if I had mine there. I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I think that I used it as many times as I wanted to use it. Yeah. So I think that the new tools, like, you know, the false color, especially nowadays, I mean, it's very specific on, uh, you know, what you're actually getting out of it. It's not false color is the best. It's yeah. my favorite 
tool that has come out for cameras ever. Like a waveform is great, but I, I kind of use waveforms to just like eyeball, you know, like ballpark it. Like, all right, it's in the zone. But with false color, you can just be like, oh, there's just, you can very easily fix a small problem that you couldn't visually see that you know will pop up in post. You know, okay. visually you're like, oh, there's enough data there. And then you get in the edit and you're like, the second we try to brighten that up, this corner just explodes, you know, and you can see that in false color. I love it so much. Yes, yes. It's it's great. And it's only click of a button. I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, you're you're shooting from the hip um, and, uh, you know, you just have to go. So when you just have to go, you really don't have time to go there, line, but you have that tool right there. You click it, you know, okay, I have to make a quick adjustment. What can it be really quickly? Do I have the time to actually fix it or should I just stop down a little bit? What should I do? But it gives you the ability to actually protect your images so much faster and very precisely as well. So I think that, um, uh, you know, regarding meters and all that, I never had a color meter, by the way, which I always wanted to. That is but I never had tool. one. I never I had one. Okay, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you for it. <laughs> you can borrow. I mean, I will say, I've said this a few times on this podcast, the best speed and accuracy thing that I love about having these, the new color meters, right? Cause the older ones, they can't really do led that well, but, um, you, you know, you're in a room and you're, you want to augment the sunlight. So you just meter the sunlight and it gives you X, Y coordinates. And on the backs of certain lights, you can type those in and it'll give you the exact color, not just color temperature, but the exact color of the light coming in. Cause you know, the CIE diagram, that's that big triangle. Right. The, the Planckian locus, this is mad nerdy. The Planckian locus is where, you know, orange to blue exists, but maybe the light's reflecting off a tree. So it's going to skew a little green, but you can't really tell. But with the X, Y coordinates, it's exactly the light. As long as the light is good enough to like reproduce that, those coordinates correctly. But most of them are, um, and just being able to walk up, get the light coming in the window, set your light to that and be done with it. Um, Save so and it just that's, looks perfect. That's uh, that's that's a very good tool to have. I mean, usually I trust my eyes. I have to say, in uh, I have to say, in the majority of the circumstances, I think that I see pretty well. I yeah, I yeah. say, uh, but uh, um, I, I, I have ever what they have... call anxiety. <laughs> ah, we all have that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I never have tried one color meter before, and I would love to have one. I would love to have one. So maybe I'm going to borrow yours. Yeah, you can play with it as long as you want. I did want to ask, because um, I had seen on your website, you know, you have your different segments of stuff you worked on, and it does feel like you have almost exclusively, or, or you, you uh, tend to shoot short films, which is different than most people I've interviewed. Most people are either like all features in television or like, mostly music videos and commercials but short films feel kind of underrepresented and i was wondering what draws you to the is that just the work that you get or are you specifically drawn to short films um you know is there advantages or disadvantages to being in that space as well it's a very good question um i have to say that nowadays i tend to shoot less and less uh short films as more mm -hmm. features and tv is coming along sure but i adore yeah. shooting short films i have to say because Although in the U.S., unfortunately, this is uh, a genre that is um, not very well represented, generally speaking, because nobody finances short films. And who would finance a short film that's never going to make its money back? It's totally understandable. However, in Europe, the government is supporting those films. The government is paying for these films to be produced because nobody else will. So you're actually... Uh, you have available means to actually create some wonderful uh, little stories there. And to me, short films are a genre of its own. I mean, usually when you, th you are thinking about short film, you're thinking about an amateur or student film or whatever, because these people do not have the means to actually do you know, a feature film. So that's how you start. That's, that's totally understandable. However, it's a genre of itself. I mean... If you look of the, for, uh, the short films that are coming out of Europe, they are spectacular. Some of them are, and they are winning, you know, Cannes, uh, Palme d'Or, uh, Oscar winners and all that. They are fantastic because some stories 
need two hours to unfold perfectly. Some other stories need 10 seasons to unfold, but some other stories need 20 minutes to unfold. So what do you do with those stories? Are you going to turn them into feature films because they cannot make their money back? Or are you going to tell them as they were supposed to be told? And that's the the stories that I'm looking for uh, generally. Not even if it's a short film, if it's, if it's a, a feature film or it's a TV series. Stories that are right to themselves, that are not pretending to be something that they are not. They're not right. straight one way or another. They're what they are. They're true to themselves. And that's true to us as the viewers. That's how we can connect. Um, so, yes, I mean, and that's, you know, life brought me more short films up until now, but now there are feature films coming. So, you know, whatever is the story, I don't say no to short films. I don't say no to feature films. I love television nowadays, I have to say. Totally. Which is something that I didn't expect because in Greece, nowadays, there are good things happening. However, when I was in Greece, TV was a really suffering medium in terms of our work. I mean, you had two or three days to shoot the entire episode, but then with the means, I mean, you didn't have maybe a 1.2 HMI to, I, I mean, you were really struggling to do something that you were not proud of. So that's why I really kept away from television, even watching television, I never really watched television until I moved to America. And I saw what great things can happen in television. And then I had this amazing opportunity to work on The Chosen, and that opened up my eyes, ears, and heart to a whole new world that um, I would love to explore uh, way more in the future. Yeah. Well, and I imagine, too, like, on the one hand, uh, television now is so much different than even 10 years ago, where, like, but like you said, budgets are starting to grow on these TV shows where now you can do something really spectacular versus, you know, like my, my example is always Doctor Who. I don't know if you ever watched Doctor Who, but like when that show is a BBC show, sci-fi thing. And, um, it would spin on for 70 years, but there's a big break. They reboot it in 2006 and it looks horrific. I mean, same thing. They've got one, you know, one party light, that's it. And it's just bad. And then, uh, you look at it now and it's, it looks like a movie. I mean, every, every episode they do 15 episodes a season or whatever. And they all look like feature films. Um, cause, and that's in the UK, but, and well, that's also a BBC. That is a government funded show. Shit. <laughs> uh, I'm telling you government is Euro in Europe is, uh, helping our industry <laughs> anyway, I can, but I imagine to shoot shooting short films and in, in a way television is kind of nice for the creative brain because you get to, you know, with a feature film that can eat up a year or more of your life, you know, and, and I could imagine it, I've never shot a feature, but I imagine that it could get kind of perhaps creatively tiring with that short films might only take three, four, six months and you can kind of bounce and, and keep uh, pushing yourself creatively and trying new things and not. Um, yeah. Yes, yes, uh, uh, but it, it all depends. I mean, in the long format, um, I again, I'm, I'm very drawn to nowadays. I mean, in the beginning, one thing that I loved about our job um, um, was that you know you can do in a year, you know, one feature and uh, a couple of episodes, and uh, uh, you know, a bunch of commercials, and put in a couple of music videos in a short film. If you're really productive and very liking, everybody wants you. Uh, but um, with other professions, even within our industry, do not have this flexibility. So I like that, and I like changing, uh, uh, you know, worlds and you know, traveling around. And but again, um, by doing my first uh, series, which kept me for a year almost. I mean, if you think about it, not a year, yeah. but you know, it was almost there um well i i loved it it's like you know it's like uh, on your teenage years or you know college years you change you know relationships around you bounce from one person to the other but then you find somebody that you're kind of you know you fall in love with and you uh, love spending time with uh, that person for a longer period i mean uh, and that, that's how I felt about television. That's why I'm a little bit in love right now. I'm a little bit in the honeymoon stage, maybe. Sure, but, sure. Uh, 
but uh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a... Uh, that actually brings up a question I want to... I know you, uh, I got to let you go soon, but I... Uh, you relatively recently joined Local 600, right? Like 2020? Yes. Yes, I uh, joined Local 600 in 2021 or 2017. Uh, yeah, it's one or the other. I, I think... Uh, when I did Lippy's Treehouse, um, I don't, yeah, I should be, uh, I think it was 1021. So I wanted to know what was your sort of, I hate the word journey, but what was your journey to joining the union? And then also how has it benefited you? And also congratulations on being nominated for like a cinematography award, basically off rip. <laughs> you basically joined a union to be nominated. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. Uh, well, I um, um, since I moved to uh, first of all in Greece, we don't have uh, unions. We did right. have back in the day, but nowadays no unions. So um, uh, because it's such a small industry and all. So when I moved, I first of all didn't know there's a union. I didn't know something like this. I just came here and I thought that hey, there has to be plenty of jobs for everyone. <laughs> so let right. me jump in. Um, and it was not like that, by the way. <laughs> but uh, I soon realized that uh, I start, you know, making connections with some DPs and some, you know, people and all that, that they were doing these amazing projects. And I'm a terrible focus puller. I cannot put focus at all. Um, so I thought, okay, you know what? Because I really want to keep on learning, I would love to participate somehow on those projects and. What do I know how to do best besides the being operating? Because I'm operating for myself anyways. So that's something that it's, you know, into me uh, anyways. And um, uh, I I started knocking on some doors and saying, hey, you know, well, when you have D uh, camera or E camera, right, right. join, you know, to see how, you know, uh, things uh, are unfolding here. And they could not, uh, very soon I realized they could not offer me such an opportunity because I was not in the local 600. I'm like, what is this local 600 at the end of the day? How do I become a member of this thing? And I realized that it's not as easy to do so. I mean, yeah. there are two ways to go about it. You're either unlucky and you have to work in non-union for a certain amount of uh, year certain amount of days but of jobs that do count for the union then uh, put all this paperwork together to prove and no pay stamps and this and that submit it then 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 impossible right so uh i said okay how do we come from the lucky ones who are these lucky ones and they said well if you're working on a show that is non-union and then it flips then you get union days but even so you have to get 30 days to become union. So if it's a show that's like 24 days, good luck getting the rest six of them. And within a year, because you have to be on the same situation for something like so majestic to happen. And I said, well, if there is a chance for me to join Local 600, I'd better be from the lucky ones because there's no way I can gather all this crazy amount of formation. And that's what happened. And since then, um, you know, Local 600 has given me some opportunities to be on much bigger projects than I would be able to. For example, I operated for Aixos um, Tadakopoulos, an amazing, another huge uh, friend of mine, amazing DP, uh, for uh, a Lionsgate movie uh, called The Jesus Revolution. Actually, Aikis is the main DP of The Chosen. He was the one to bring me on board of this amazing show as well, which um again turned union in the beginning it was not union now it is so i would not be able to be there if i was not in the union um so it has brought me some um, amazing opportunities and i'm looking forward to uh, other opportunities to come uh strike uh, uh you know when this whole thing will uh you know be a, a part of history uh, but until then, you know, we have we have to stick with each other because, you know, um, uh, our brothers there are fighting for something very important and something that we will soon be fighting as well. And now they're setting a, pre a president. So it's important for this president to be set yeah. and to make sure that, as we were talking before about tools, that the tools are there and they're super exciting 
and great. They help us reach our goals much faster in a much more efficient way, etc. Yes, but we have to be careful that those tools will, uh, you know, work for us and not us for the tools. Uh, it's a thin balance there, but we still have, as we say in Greece, you have the watermelon and you also have the knife and you can carve it to your liking. So we better carve it correctly now so that it's carved to our liking before it gets carved by itself. And that may be mean for the watermelon to splash in our head. So yeah, like, um, that's uh, that's my take on, on that. And yeah. You, well, and also I'm, I'm a firm bullet, like you were saying about like, good to support like WGA and SAG and all these people who are striking because I'm a firm believer in, uh, you know, the rising tide lifting all boats. You know, if the, it, it, I don't, I, in general in America, there seems to be this idea that like, oh, if someone gets more, somehow I get less. And especially if they're in like your business or whatever. But if, if writers and actors get more, that means that we can also get more. You know, no one's going to be like, they're special, they're specialer than you. It's like, no, we're all going to, it's going to make all of us more comfortable, you know, and especially, you know, with how much. And it goes vice versa. The the less that they achieve, the less we will achieve. Yep. So, you know, we are, you know, the beauty of filmmaking is that it's a collective art. It's an art that is made from so many people into one piece. There are not many art forms out there that do so. And get it to remain so personal. So we are one. It doesn't matter, you know, all the crew and the cast, everybody working for this one collective piece is one. Because they, yeah. they, they produce one piece that has to be solid and all well-rounded. Um, so uh, we have to stay together because we are together and we will always be together and we will always work together as long as we keep the opportunity of working together or working generally on the table yeah absolutely well i'll uh i'll let you go now because we've gone a little over but um yeah we'll i'll definitely have to because you live so close we'll meet up for a beer later and i'll lend you that uh color meter and we can nerd out about that excellent I can't wait. I can't wait. I have to say to, uh, and you have to do that. At some point, come to my rooftop, which is one of the best places I consider it to be in LA. I I would uh, love that because we have an apartment. Every other apartment building in my on my street has rooftops, and we don't. And we don't have a pool. Either. Oh, worst. <laughs> so then, then, then I, I then I assume that uh, if you are you local six hundred. No, no, I don't is shoot it, a lot. Of, I think. Uh, Shoot a lot of I think that right uh, that when you uh, become a member, you better stick up those uh, uh, files because it looks like you're from the unlikely ones. If yeah, if yeah, other, yeah. Other of the like <laughs> yeah, totally. All right, man. Well, uh, like I said, thanks a lot. Uh, that was a lot of fun, and uh, I'll be in touch. Thank you so much, Katie. It was wonderful uh, being here, and thank you for having. Me. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. As this is an independent podcast, it's supported by listeners like you. So if you'd like to support, go ahead and go to buymeacoffee.com slash frameandrefpod. And as always, thanks for listening. And as of yesterday, congrats to our WGA brothers and sisters.